I'm most proud of this time because it took a lot to get to this place to be able to, you know, cut off my job. Um, and a lot of sacrifices along the way of being able to see a higher picture, especially living in a very, um, in a place in Los Angeles and even working amongst people who take big vacations and buy cars, fancy cars, like every, every other year and stuff like that. Um, I like to be able to say, you know what? No, that's just not my path. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Lisa Hilton, who is the host of the Level Up REI podcast and lisahilton.com, real estate firm that was created for entrepreneurs to build passive income and wealth through tax-efficient real estate investments. Today, we have Lisa on the show to help us better understand the real estate funds model. I think most of our listeners out there are pretty familiar with the single investment syndication model, but Lisa is really going to help us better understand the private equity fund model and how it applies to real estate. So I'll just stop right there and say, Lisa, welcome to the show. Yes. Thank you for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah. So my favorite ice cream is rum and raisin. Okay. Did they serve that a lot in the Caribbean because of the rum? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. But it's a Haagen-Dazs brand primarily. Um, so yeah, rum and raisin is runner-up number one. And then uh, grape nut is my second one as awesome. well. Well, controversial topic that we typically discuss is toppings or no toppings. Ah, so for these ones, no toppings, okay. unless I'm going to like a yogurt shop, then I will get like toppings. And typically I like to stay with healthy stuff. So like yeah. strawberries, granola, and like, like uh, cookies, Oreo cookies. Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> we were talking about your discipline before the show. You have way more discipline than me then. Cause when I go to the yogurt <laughs> shop, it's like very little yogurt, all sweets. No, I try to keep some balance. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I am a real estate syndicator. Um, and in the real estate syndication space, I am a connector. I help c provide opportunities to investors who are interested in investing in real estate, commercial real estate specifically. And they typically are interested for cash flow, appreciation, or tax benefits. Um, and then on the other side, I build relationships with operators who play across the country in different asset classes, but primarily multifamily to be able to understand, do due diligence on them and be able to partner with them, strategically partner with them in order to provide opportunities for my investors. Awesome. We talk a lot about how real estate investing in the commercial space is a team sport. And it sounds like you are the glue for all of those team members. Um, yes. But where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So my real estate journey began as a child. My father was a contractor. He built 14 apartment units. This is in Grand Cayman. And he built them when I was a young child, because by the time I got to middle school, my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and as a result passed away. But because he made that early investment, we were able to still, you know, continue as a family. Um, and ultimately when I got to college is when the brain tumor diagnosis actually took his life. But because we still have those properties today and my mom takes care of them do, doing property management full time. 
So yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, that's a, a good ending to a tragic story there. But did how maybe talk to us a little bit about how did that help your family financially knowing that you had 14 units that were built and and could use that income stream? Yeah, you know, honestly, it definitely helped my family for sure. But growing up, my parents were really not focused on real estate. You would think that they would have been more focused. But um, I, I'd say that their focus was really about, okay, make sure you go to school, get an education and make sure you get out there and get a good job. Yeah. It wasn't really about like by building more apartments or anything of that nature. It was like, well, have what we have and that's it, right? It definitely was instrumental. My parents, my father was a, con as I said, my father was a contractor, but it wasn't like he went to school and had some fun, like high degree. Um, and same for my mom, you know, at best they had high school education, but they used the skills that they had to build what they, you know, the real estate and that helped us, you know, to go to really good schools. And, you know, my mom was able to retire in her fifties and like, just have a really good life. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you all still own that property today? Yes, we do. I'm curious. Would you ever sell that? No. Yeah. Um, I actually want to build more, but my siblings aren't really interested. And I decided that I wasn't going to do it on my own since they were not. Um, and I was just going to build the real estate business organically itself. And then in the future, if they're ready, then we'll do something together. But I wasn't going to do it on my own because, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. So, yeah. I I just think like sometimes and when we're thinking about financial situations, there are things that make sense on paper in terms of math and there are things yes. that make sense in terms of emotion. And there's a blend of those two. And people often ask me questions like, what would you do in this situation? And I have to explain that like math tells you this emotion right. or some, some other form will tell you this. I personally will never sell my first home I ever bought just for that reason. Like sure. it carries a very little tax burden on me, a very little uh, mortgage payment for me and it's rented out. So why would I ever sell it kind of thing? So yeah, totally, totally, totally. Yeah. I agree with you. Like there are times like my mother will say that, you know, people have come by to purchase, but yeah, that, it doesn't really make any sense in our eyes. So yeah. 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 So then you, you come to the States and you graduated from the University of Georgia, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah. I went to school down South with a degree in accounting. What, what did you do after school there? Did you jump into so, accounting or? Yes. So I went home back to Cayman after Georgia. I was in Cayman for four years working in public accounting, auditing funds. So in Cayman, it's not like, as I had a choice, we only have two options there. Like you're either in funds or insurance or banks but it's other, it's just financial services at that point in time. And there weren't that many banks. So most people were either on funds or insurance captives, which are funds as well, but they invest in like insurance companies. So I was on funds back then. This was in like, I don't know, 2006. And then I spent four years there. And then I went to the, um, I came to the US. I went to Boston. I was there for four years, also in alternatives. So hedge funds, private equity funds, all the funds. So just auditing all these different funds. And then I left there to come to Boston, to LA, same firm. So 10 years. Uh, so LA, two years out here, also um, auditing funds, just different funds, different fund investment manager, different fund managers. So lots of funds. And then eventually left to go work for a fund manager as a controller on private equity funds. 
So instead of auditing the funds, I was now preparing the financials that the auditors would come in to review and then do all of calling capital from investors, making distributions, running the management fee calcs, performance fee calcs, and then just reviewing our third-party administrator. So we usually would hire a third-party administrator to do pretty much all the day-to-day work. And then the controllers would then review it to make sure everything is correct. Uh, So yeah. Gotcha. I, I'm not trying to knock accountants, but you've got to be the most extroverted accountant I have ever met in my life. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, oh, I, I know that because I work, I've worked in a lot with a lot of accountants <laughs> in my day. And I can tell you that most are definitely not trying to be out there. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> yep, yep. So it um, took a transition for me. So yeah. So during this process, when you're working at W2, were you also yes. investing in real estate as well? Yeah. So one, I, I bought my first place when I was living in Grand Cayman, working with PwC. I bought a townhouse, two bedroom, two and a half bath in Grand Cayman. And I bought it because I walked in and I loved it. That's why I bought it. And I quickly got schooled in real estate, um, holding onto that property for a total of five to six years. It broke even the first year. And then it lost money every single year after that for a total of five years. I was in there, like I was a landlord taking property management and landlord taking care of the property when I lived in Grand Cayman. And I was an out of country landlord for the rest of the time, because, you know, I didn't think about some things when I was going into these properties. And we can talk more about some of the lessons I learned. I do kind of want to dig into that because a lot of folks that are getting into real estate the first time, they think that they need to property manage it themselves. And I am under the firm belief that that is not the highest and best use of my time. I'm not saying that it should be for yours or someone else's time, but that's not the best use of my time. So I always calculate the numbers that I'm going to have a property manager in there whenever I buy property. But what are some of the pitfalls that you learned from investing uh, or from property managing? Yeah, that's the first one. Like, Calculate running the numbers to make sure that you have the ability to hire property management. Because sometimes people think, oh, you know, I'm never going to leave. Like I was thinking about leaving Cayman, but, you know, I wasn't sure. And then when I ended up leaving, it was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this property? And I couldn't put it, um, I couldn't hire property management because the numbers were so tight. And then by the second year, I was now losing money. So I really, it would just be even more money losing. So that's the first thing is learning how to run the numbers to begin with. I think a lot of people going in, like there were no bigger pockets back then. It had rental calculators that people could just sort of put these numbers in. You don't really know. Um, so you get burned because you're not taking the time to run the numbers to make sure. Um, definitely making sure that you have property management. Secondly, I bought a property that was in a strata or also known as housing association which had housing association fees. So these fees don't always stay steady and they don't always go down. Many times they're actually going up because they include insurance and maybe maintenance for the property, you know, landscaping, things like this. And um, you're not in control. So when you, in, when you buy a property that has these housing association fees or strata fees, you know, other members who live there and who are resident owners, they can vote and say, oh, well, no renters in here or no Airbnb in here, or we should increase the strata because we want to have more reserves, you know, things like that, you know, can mess with your numbers and your profits. 
Um, and then you never see that money, yeah. unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah. Not only are you underwriting the property at that point, you're also underwriting the HOA because if they're yes. insolvent, all of a sudden, guess who has to pay for their solvency? It's you, the owner. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say that was some of the key things is overpaying, not overpaying for property um, and following the crowd. Like, that time feels a lot like this time right now in the market where everyone is trying to buy, you know, they're just like, oh, we should buy, we should buy. And then you don't really think, stop to think, okay, well, what are your goals? Like, what are you, why, what brings you to the real estate marketplace? And like, what do you really want? Because if you do want cash flow, like, do you really need to go buy some property that you're going to now need to also asset manage or property manage, maybe you could, maybe there's another way to invest in real estate that doesn't require you to now be, you know, spending time managing property. So yeah, that's it. One of the things that I talk about a lot is just clarity and knowing where you're trying to go, because mm -hmm. I think people view decisions as binary. There's like a left and a right, a one and a two, a yes or a right. no. And what we don't realize is that when we make that one decision, it sets us off on a different path to make different decisions. So if you're not super clear on what you want, where you're trying to go, you might make a decision in the moment that is the right decision in the moment, but it's the mm -hmm. wrong path longer term. So I'm, I'm so happy you brought that up. Um, because one of the things that I think separates you when you were going down your journey is you talked a little bit about looking at turnkey properties. Mm -hmm. And so you were flying to the Midwest, you were flying to the right. Southeast and looking at these different turnkey properties, but ultimately chose syndications. Can you help our listeners understand, like, first of all, what is a turnkey property? Maybe for anybody sure. that's new to that term, but why did you decide against that versus going into syndications? Yeah, great question. So turnkey properties are typically single family, sometimes even small multifamily, so duplex, triplex, and fourplexes that have been renovated and they're tenant ready. So you, as an investor, just need to go in, buy it, and then it'll usually even come with a tenant. So you now have passive income and it should really be hands off and you shouldn't really have a whole lot of issues. That's turnkey. It's like all set. Whereas if you go on to Redfin and these places, like many of those properties are not turnkey. So like you're buying them and you're most likely going to have to put in extra money into the property to renovate it in some way, shape or form. These properties should come with no renovation needs. Uh, so that's a turnkey strategy. Um, yeah, I did look at turnkey for a good while and then just couldn't pull the trigger. I think my earlier experiences sort of made me a little bit gun shy about going forward with it. And I just didn't really trust whether the numbers would really pan out. Um, I was very conservative in nature and still is to some extent, even though I take a lot more risk these days, but still very, still from a very conservative base. So real estate syndications, I didn't know they existed until I, you know, just randomly met someone who was a syndicator and I found out, oh, like you can do this. And I was like, this is like what I do for work, but it's for people who are like, you know, the country of whatever, some big oil country yeah. <laughs> that's investing millions of dollars. You know, I didn't know that regular people could pool money and buy a large, you know, a hundred unit or 200 unit apartment building. And in the, that case, for me, my first deal was a 600 unit apartment building in Atlanta. Right. And when I saw it, I was just like, wow, I had no idea that this was even possible. So, you know, I reviewed it and ultimately 
because I had met the person previously and then later found out that they were in real estate syndications, I was like, oh, you know what? Um, I'm interested in giving this a try because like it sort of works well for me. I live in LA. I know that this, this city is just not conducive for investing. And this particular property is in an area that it's in Atlanta. It's a great market. And, you know, it turned out to be a good investment because it was eventually sold and we got our money back and with friends and on we go. So, yeah. Yeah. So turnkey is really, you're buying a property that's probably already renovated. They've extracted the value of it. It's a good place mm -hmm. to store your money, but ultimately you are still managing the manager of that property right. where syndications appear to be more passive because you are just a capital partner. There's somebody that's managing yes. it, somebody for rehab, somebody that's giving you day to day, and you might get a monthly or a quarterly newsletter or, or an update on how that property is doing, but you aren't involved in the day-to-day -day decisions, which, 100%. you know, Going back to best and highest use of your time, if you have a high valued skill set in the market, maybe it's not best that you go out there and do flips or do wholesaling or do turnkey investments. Maybe it's better that you're just a passive investor in some of those properties. Um, so I think most of our listeners at this point are, are pretty familiar with like single asset syndication. So it's very similar to what you just mentioned. You put sure. together a structure, you buy a, a single asset of a property, but Funds are typically are, are, are the new rage out there. And a lot of people are talking about funds. Can you yeah. maybe talk to us a little bit of difference between like a fund of funds and a blind fund? Let's maybe start there. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's really three types of funds that are out there. There are blind funds, as you mentioned before, semi-blind funds, um, and then there's fund of funds. Um, so the blind fund is, you know, takes the most trust from investors because blind is like, Hey, you know what? I'm creating a fund. I don't, I haven't quite decided what deals I'm going to be invested in, but you know, my track record, um, and people decide to invest with you and then you place the capital accordingly. Right. So that's typically the, the, um, the blind funds, um, semi blind funds come with at least some kind of, um, they have, they, they have a plan. So they're going to be doing multifamily. They're going to be doing value add multifamily, or maybe they're doing self-storage multifamily, self-storage and multifamily. So you know what they're going to be investing in. Um, and you don't necessarily know the property. The property hasn't been identified as yet, but you at least know what strategy that they're planning on buying. And they're planning on sticking to those parameters. Um, and in both cases, they have like, what they're planning on achieving in terms of their target IRR, target cash on cash. So they're gonna look for properties that they can essentially take investors' money, invest in, and achieve those kind of returns for investors. So then also in the semi-blind funds are, I would say funds that enable investors to choose what investments they wanna be in. Um, and I saw this even in the institutional space as well, where an investor could commit, like, say, $100 million to a fund. Um, and then as the investment manager identifies investments, they'll bring them to the investor's base and who have committed and say, hey, out of your $100 million, um, would you like to uh, deploy XYZ amount to this investment? And the investor has a choice to say yes. I like the deal I want to deploy or no, I don't like this deal. I'd like to pass. 
So there are also funds that are structured that way as well that exist so that investors can choose. Um, the last one is the fund of fund structure. So the fund of fund structure is typically where you create an entity and that entity can be um, invested in either of the two that I described as well as directly into direct uh, syndications. So it could be a an entity that's created to invest in a purely blind fund or it could be investing into a semi-blind fund in the ways I described before, the two different ways it could be set up, or it could be invested into a direct syndication where you know what, you're, what deal you're investing in and you're choosing to then invest through this entity to get access to that particular deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. So are blind funds very similar to SPACs then? It seems like there are a lot of like in the SPAC crave a big investor out there will say that they're going to raise money for a SPAC, but you have no idea what business they're going to invest in. They're just raising money. So I don't know what a SPAC is, but based on what you just defined it as, it would sound, it, it definitely sounds exactly like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So mm -hmm. why would, why would I, as an investor want to invest in a blind fund? What, mm -hmm. what, like what benefits would I get into that versus investing yes. in a single asset syndication? Sure. So some people don't have time. You know, they really don't have time. They have, a, they're making really good money. So maybe they are entrepreneurs and their business is kicking off anywhere from 100 to 250 a month. And they really need to find places to place this capital to invest. So they will be interested in investing in these blind funds because they're not really interested in like looking at each deal, analyzing it, doing underwriting, et cetera, et cetera. Connected to that, they have relationships with good sponsors who they trust already. So maybe they have invested in one-off deals with them in the past. So now they're at a place where they're like, you know what? I really trust this sponsor. I've done, you know, whatever, five, six, or whatever amount of deals that they, makes them feel comfortable. And they decide, okay, you know what? I'm happy putting my money in and knowing that they're going to run the show. Um, so that's primarily the reasons why they will do that. Do I get any benefits from going blind fund versus fund of funds? Like what, why would I go funds of funds over blind funds then? Yeah, great question. So typically fund of funds come into play. I would say it comes into play in a couple of different ways. Usually the, um, the blind funds, not all the time, but sometimes they could be in a situation, especially if you're dealing with a really good sponsor, the minimums are typically really high. So if you're working with a very good sponsor, you, they're looking, you're probably looking at anywhere from 100 to 250, if not more, for certain types of funds that are out there. Now, if you now are able to connect to a fund manager who dis, you know, are doing a fund to fund type structure, they might choose to have a lower minimum. They might not necessarily do it. It just depends on like, what the economics of that particular investment is. They might choose to have a lower minimum. Number two, they might have maybe a similar minimum, but they're going out there and it's their job to find these operators. Once again, it comes back to time and desire to be looking for these operators and doing due diligence on them and you know checking their deals and all this other stuff. Sometimes people just don't have capacity to do that. Um, and that's where they might just meet someone who is, you know, a fund manager, they're creating fund of funds, and that then enables them to have access 
The second thing is, especially in the syndication space where you're just doing one deal, um, if you meet a fund manager who then has relationships with multiple sponsors, they could create fund of fund structures that give investors access to multiple deals. Um, and that 50K, like there's some out there where they you could invest 50K and that 50K would be split across a few different deals if they have a higher volume of investors. There's pros and cons with having a higher volume of investors, but some people choose to do it. It's an option to provide diversification for investors. Yeah. And I think that's really one of the keys to all of this as well is if you have $50,000 to invest, a lot of these single asset syndications require a $50,000 minimum. Mm -hmm. You might be able to place that in something like a blind fund or a fund of funds and be able to split that 50, however the operator sees fit into multiple assets, whether that's across different multifamilies, across different right. assets like multifamily and medical and all these different things. So you're getting a little bit more diversification with that $50,000 if you want it to be. Yes, 100%. And in some cases, you as the investor can, like depending on the way the entity is structured, you could probably have the, the power to sort of say, hey, you know what? I don't want any medical. I only want multifamily or I don't want any self-storage. I want mobile home parks. So like that's, you know, one of the beauties of sort of doing it this way. Gotcha. So I see the um, biggest question that's probably on a lot of folks' mind is yeah. a blind fund. I'm giving money to someone not yeah. knowing where they're going to place it and under the promise that they're going to give me some sort of return. How do you go about vetting sponsors of these yeah. funds to make sure yeah, that yeah, yeah. You're, you're in a good position? Yeah. Great question. Great oh, she's question. getting ready for it. I see it. She's <laughs> adjusting herself. She's getting ready for it. Yeah. Great question. So I think that people should take their time getting to know people. It, after all, it's your money, yeah. you know? So number one, ask about track record. So ask, Hey, what's been your track record? And from that question, they should provide to you a track record. What does that look like? It'll look like the deals that they've done, what the projected returns were, what were the actual returns, how many have sold, and what were the actual returns for those, as well as what are the actual returns on the current deals, like year one, year two, that kind of stuff, um, as they're going along. Uh, for the ones that are currently, like if they bought them in 2021, then obviously this is their first year, so there's not going to be any track record there. So that means if you're working with someone who has just been in the business this year, then they're not necessarily having a track record. So you now can determine whether you're willing to take the risk or not, you know, depending on other factors. So based on maybe their experience with other businesses that they've been involved in, number one, number two, other people that they have on their team. So maybe they personally haven't invested, but maybe they have people on their team who have, which in my opinion, I think that it's really good to partner with other people who have experience, because if you're going to take someone's money, like it's really good to at least be partnering with people who have been down this road before in terms of buying multifamilies, executing a value add plan. So that way it's not, you're able to reduce the execution risk. For me, I like to also understand what asset classes they are specialized in. So you can always tell the difference between operators and non-operators. 
operators are very, they're, they only have one or two markets. The people who are non-operators typically have multiple. Um, and the only way you'd have multiple as an operator is if you have a big team. So if you now have hired people to cover different regions of the United States, then that's different. And you can ask, you should ask to learn how, you know, they do their thing. Um, and then, so you understand where, what market they're focused on. You understand what kind of um, business strategy they're typically focused on. So that is also important. So if they are value add people, class C, you know, and then now they're suddenly doing a minus property. It's like, well, okay, who on your team is also experienced in the A minus space? Why do you, why do I say that? Because it, it's almost like you are a server at the Ritz Carlton and then you're also a server at the beach, beach, you know, a beach hut. It's yeah. like completely different. So you just sort of need to know what you're, how to conduct yourself with the Ritz Carlton's, you know, clientele versus the beach hut clientele kind of thing. Hopefully that helps people to sort of understand that you're just looking at different things and there might be different um, levers that are available to you because you're now dealing in like an A minus asset versus a C plus asset. Yeah. I think when I'm pulling away from that is track record, number one. So what is your track record versus what you said you were going to do versus what you did to your mm -hmm. niche? So do you have a specialty in this? I, to your point, operating right. an A-class property versus operating a medical facility are two different skill sets. Yes. And there might be some similarities, but they're two different skill sets with different regulations. And then last, I like to see like, what's your communication like with your investors? So it's not that bad things aren't going to happen because they will. I want to know how you'll communicate when bad things are happening. Are you going to duck and hide or are we going to hit it straight on and come together right. and try to find a, a solution? Um, I'll give a shameful plug to your book online because I downloaded that before we got a chance to get on the interview and you have 12 questions that you can ask operators. So I'd encourage everybody, yeah. we're going to leave some links for that. Um, you've already kind of spelled it out in there on some difficult, some straight questions you can ask different operators. Um, so we've got single source versus funds. I kind of understand a little bit more about the funds now. Talk to us a little bit about the structure of a fund. So there's mm -hmm. different fees involved. There's waterfalls. There's all these different terms out there that might be new for some of our listeners. Help us understand the structure of some of these funds. Yeah. You know, the structure is very similar to the real estate syndications, at least the funds I've seen so far. They typically will have an asset management fee. They'll typically have acquisition fee. Um, and then the, in terms of the waterfall, so many of them will also have a preferred return. Most I've seen have preferred returns, but you can structure them without. Um, and then of course the profit splits, 70, 30, 80, 20, around there. And then they will typically, some of them will also have waterfalls. So in the sense of 80, 20, um, split for profits up until an IRR of maybe 15. And then after that, it's split 50-50. So these are some of the things that I would say, but many of these are very similar to um, regular real estate syndications. You know, the fund just really gives people diversification. I think that's really the biggest thing. But, you know, in terms of the structuring, they'll typically have like a different entity for each 
they should have a different entity for each property that they invest in. But from an investor perspective, there shouldn't really be any change because you're just investing into the main investor entity and that entity then takes the money and invest it into the various deals. Gotcha. But yeah. Gotcha. Well, before we get into our last five questions of the show, I want to ask, since you um, work with different funds out there and you're a yeah. connector in the real estate industry, are there any like markets or asset classes or types of verticals, whether they be self-storage, mobile homes, multifamily, things mm-hmm. like that, that you're seeing a lot of right now that are interesting? Um, you know, I... I would say I see a lot of multifamily self-storage and mobile home parks, as well as industrial, as well as industrial. Um, I would say that's what I see the most these days. I don't really see anything, you know, less, less or more from in the past. However, there's also, you know, a lot of conversions, you know, people buying um, hotels to convert them into multifamily So before we get into the last five questions here, are you seeing um, working with private managers and funds of funds and being a connector like you are, are you seeing different markets or different asset classes or anything like that that's really sticking out to you right now? Yeah, so there's a lot of conversion, like hotel and office conversion to multifamily. Um, I would say that's a big, big, you know, driver right now. Some of the things as people think about deploying capital into those conversions, I think it's important to, you know, make sure that the the assets that are being converted are actually around other multifamilies, because that would, you know, be able to sort of substantiate that people would want to live in that particular type of area. Um, And then You know, I think the other thing that I think is really key to note that I learned most recently is that not all hotels um, are like some people even purchase hotels with the plan to change it into multifamily and later realize, oh, you know what, we can actually just do renovations on this hotel and sort of leave it the way it is. Um, And this was true for like uh, these like Um, extended stay hotels, which apparently did very well through the pandemic because they were not shut down because they were seen as like, you know, similar to multifamily essential places for people to live. So just knowing some of those kinds of things is really important as well. Yeah. The the point about making sure that most people want to live in that area is super interesting to me. I, I've been kind of following this trend of conversions and like yeah. the dead malls that are out there, those would be interested assisted living facilities. And somebody way smarter than me is probably already thinking about something like that, but it is a, definitely a trend I've been watching for a little bit here. Sure. Well, Lisa, I want to join now, get us now to our last five questions. We're calling this segment, the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is something that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Um, I would say two things in terms of favorite books. I think the first one would be for this audience specifically would be The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. Um, I really like that book. It's really good for people who are thinking about investing passively. It gives you a lot of really good tips. Um, And then personally um, that has affected me is I would say The Big Leap. Um, definitely a really good book for anyone who's at a place in their life where they're getting ready to take a big leap 
of some short. Yeah. Um, it's really a good book that helps you to see some of the things that you're going to feel, um, the way you're going to feel to then be able to know that it's going to be okay. And that you just got to keep going. Yeah. I haven't heard of the big leap, but I would agree the hands-off investor by Brian Burke. Like if you're a finance nerd, it's good. And if you don't really understand real estate syndications, it's good. It's, it's the book I wish I would have written kind of thing. It's that good. Yeah, so it's good. Um, our second one is, I believe the person that you'll become in 10 years is directly correlated to the habits that you do every day. What is something that you do every day? Um, so I like to work out um, affirmations and meditation. Um, I would say those, that's the way I like to start my morning. What's your workout of choice? Uh, so I actually do beach body and okay. in the beach body, my favorite, some of my, one of my favorite programs is the 80 day obsession. So okay. it's 80 workouts that are supposed to spend 80 days with Sundays off. <laughs> um, and they're awesome. I love it. I'll have to check it out. I'm, I'm, uh, I long distance Ironman triathlete myself, and I'm trying to incorporate more of these like hit workouts yes. to keep me well-rounded from just straight up endurance running and cycling. So I'll have to check sure. it out. Thank you. Yeah. For that. It's so good. Um, what is the, the, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Huh. Um, great question. I would say the best person that you are able to help slash teach is the person you once were. Interesting. Who told you that? Or where did you hear that? Um, YouTube somewhere, yeah. like one of those folks on YouTube, Yeah. like multiple people actually have said that in, in different capacities, but typically coaches, Yeah. like in terms of who you can best serve, even like if there are syndicators here, you know, who are thinking about like, um, like who they could resonate with in terms of as they think about building their investor base. Um, that's also something operators as they think about who they could resonate with as also investor bases and just people in general. You know, I think thinking about who you once were um, can help you because like, you know, you, you're best equipped to know their struggles, their pain points, um, and the things that are most unique to their journey, um, to be able to provide empathy and to really be able to meet them where they are. You've just given me something to ponder about for the next couple of days. So thank you for that. You're um, <laughs> um, our fourth one is what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Um, hmm. I want to say this time right now, um, I'm most proud of this time because it took a lot to get to this place to be able to, you know, cut off my job um, and a lot of sacrifices along the way of being able to see a higher picture, especially living in a very, um, in a place in Los Angeles and even working amongst people who take big vacations and buy cars fancy cars like every every other year and stuff like that um i like to be able to say you know what no that's just not my path and to be able to put my take the same money that they're paying and maybe maybe i even got paid less money who knows um but to be able to sort of take that money and sort of been able to create options for myself and that's what this time is this time is the option to pursue something that i want to do and and that came from me making deliberate choices on how I choose to use 
the six figure salary, as opposed to buying big homes, I decided to take the money and actually invest it in commercial real estate that generate cash flow and, and save it and all this other stuff to provide myself with runway to then be able to do whatever I want to do, including build a business that I feel passionate about. So, yeah, you've, you've opened up another rabbit hole that I would love to have you back on and explore one day is how much more, now that you have the basic needs of cash flow coming in, how much mm -hmm. more intentional you can be and how much you're more able to shine as a person because you're pursuing passionate things that you care about versus yeah. thinking about how do I have to have a roof over my head or food on the table and things like that. And that's, sure. that's one of the things that I helped hope to get out of this podcast in general is that folks will realize that if you, if you invest your hand wisely, then you could be more intentional with the way you show up, not only to your career, but to your family and to those that you care about and your passions that you care about. So you are yeah, a shining 100%. example of that. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah. For me, hands down Oprah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hands down Oprah, because, you know, here's a woman who has defied the odds of what society believed was possible for her and has created something that has touched so many people in amazing ways. So for me, it's very inspiring. And I believe just being in the company of people like that helps to you unlock the ways in which you can do the same for other people. So yeah. Yep, yep. And by the way, fun fact, she got her start in Nashville as a huh? news reporter. <laughs> That's now, true. She's at Na <laughs> Chicago and now, but she got her start in Nashville. Oh, nice. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lisa, this has been great. I appreciate the time and willingness to walk us through this new fund of funds and blind funds and all the funds yeah. out there. Um, if our listeners wanted to connect with you and learn more about you, where, where could we uh, point them? Yes. So best place to go, one-stop shop, lisahilton.com. And that's Hilton with a Y. So um, yeah, lisahilton.com. And then my freebie on funds, just beginner's guide to investing in real estate funds is also lisahilton.com forward slash funds. And that's it. Perfect. Well, we're going to leave those links in the show notes. And I downloaded your book before we got a chance to talk. And I would say it's very valuable for those that are interested in this space. And again, going back to those questions that you can ask operators before um, you invest your money with them. So awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to having you back on soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.